And then this morning, just uh, I want to remind you that we are celebrating uh, Reformation Month, and we typically take the, the month of October to remind ourselves uh, what makes us distinct from what is often considered to be the church. That's the Catholic Church. And um, there was this thing called the Protestant Reformation. It was a protest, not a protest against government, although the church and the governments were definitely intertwined, um, but it was a protest against uh, a, a theology and a philosophy of ministry that flows out of that theology. And uh, if you noticed on the, uh, on the page where we, we list uh, what's happening today for this morning and where the handout is for today, there were two handouts. And one of them was uh, this document that we put together a few years ago, um, simply just identifying the five solas of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Soli Dea Gloria. And these are the five, might want to say, um, simple statements that articulate what makes the distinction between what the Catholic Church was teaching and why there was a protest. And I'm not going to get into all the details this morning. I simply want to make sure that you are aware of this document. It's very clear. It gives some of the history and it identifies what these different aspects are. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about maybe some highlights from the, the, the Reformation, and maybe some significant people or some significant events. But it's good for us to remember um, the roots of our Protestantism. And uh, you may not realize that, that Gateway Bible Church, as well as many other evangelical churches, are the fruit of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, it wasn't simply a church thing. It was a doctrinal battle, and it was a battle for the essence of what the gospel is all about. And uh, so please be mindful of that, read up on that, and hopefully be encouraged by why it is so important. Well, let me invite you now to get your Bibles and to stand. We're going to read um, Exodus chapter 19, verses 7 through 15. If you're with us for the first time, we want to welcome you. Uh, we're thankful that you're here. Our practice is to work our way through a book of the Bible. We believe wholeheartedly that the Bible is relevant. God, were, God has breathed out His Word for us. And when we go through a book, God will carefully and clearly reveal to us what we need for the lives that we're living today. And, and Exodus has certainly shown that to be true. And I trust that this morning you will continue to see that um, as we study this passage together. So Exodus chapter 19 Verses 7 through 15, it says this, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people uh, to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on, the Mount, uh, on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. 
For whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of your word. We thank you for um, the fact that you have desired to communicate some things about yourself to us um, in breathing out this word. And Lord, you, you, you want to teach us also about ourselves. And so this morning, would we, uh, would we be a people that are eager to listen, hungry to learn? And what we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? We ask this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, um, a number of you know that um, I grew up a good portion of my life in England, and my father worked for British Airways. And when I was about 12 years old, he came home and he says, guys, I am going to be gone for about three weeks. I'm going on a trip for British Airways to the island of Pago Pago, which is now the American Samoan. And my job there is to prepare for the visit of the Queen of England. And we thought to ourselves, wow, my dad is going to meet the Queen. This is an incredible thing. He's in charge of the preparations. We have to see this. Now, of course, this is way before the, you know, the time of, you know, of Facebook and live stream and all that kind of stuff. And so we had to, to wait to see if he was going to be on TV. And of course, for us, it was a proud moment for any British subject to be able to shake the hand or even meet the queen was a wonderful thing. And so we watched as the, the, as the plane came in and then the, the, the queen descended from the airplane and walked to where the reception party stood and uh, she reached out and shook hands of the first few dignitaries, but my, my father was not one of them. Then in what is often called a Mike Wazowski moment, my father now obscured from the camera uh, and, and you know, by other people reached out his hand and shook the hand of the queen. My father's hand touched royalty. Now we didn't see his face, but we knew it was his hand and he confirmed it when he got home. My father touched royalty, what an opportunity, what an honor. What a privilege. But for my father, it wasn't just about meeting the queen. For him, it was making sure that all the preparations were in place to receive the queen. Everything had to be ready. Now, friends, our text today is all about being ready to meet the Lord. The Lord tells Moses to tell the people, I am coming to you. And friends, as our very own Glenn Sterling would say, that should scare the bejeebers out of them. And friends, a question for you, a question for me. Are you ready to meet God? Israel has been told the purpose of their deliverance from Egypt was to make God known, to make God known to Egypt, to make God known to themselves as a people, and to make God known to the surrounding nations. But the purpose of Israel's departure from Egypt is also 
so that they can meet with God in the wilderness. And so chapters 1 through 18, that's where we find God delivering or saving his people from bondage, and it transitions now into chapters 19 through 20, where we see God speaking to Israel and making demands of them. He is coming to visit with them. He's saying, I delivered you. Now I'm coming to meet with you. I'm coming for a visit. I am moving into your neighborhood. So be ready. I'm coming. So be ready. Now, of course, the question is, will Israel be ready to meet with their Lord, the I am? Or will they quarrel and grumble again? And what about you? Are you ready to meet your king, to meet God, to meet Christ? Now, there's two theological words that are helpful here as we seek to understand who God is and why meeting with him should not be taken lightly. And let me identify this first one. It's called God's transcendence. God is transcendent. In other words, God is distinct from his creation. He is other. He is beyond and distant from his creation because of his holiness and greatness. He is holy other, holy with a W-H, completely, totally other and apart from us. But God is not only transcendent, he is also imminent. God is involved with his creation. He is near, and he relates to his creatures. He's totally with us. Now, which one of those words best describes your understanding of God? A few years back, I was reading a a book by Ken Follet entitled The Pillars of the Earth. It's a historical narrative novel, but it tells the story about a man by the name of Jack who is a stonemason and who is consumed with building abbeys and ultimately wants to build a cathedral. It's his life stream. It's his heart. It's his his passion. Why? Because he sees in them the ability to demonstrate the majesty and the grandeur of God. Now, friends, this is how God has been understood through much of history. And especially in the medieval times when cathedrals were built, he is magnificent, he is beautiful, he's powerful, he is almighty, he's beyond us, and we're so far removed from him. And so we can't reach God by ourselves. We need the church, we need priests, we need someone to mediate for us. That's, that's the idea that's flowing out of these cathedrals and these, these ideas of God's transcendence. And so we go into a magnificent cathedral and experience and feel the wonder, the greatness, and the majesty of God. If you've ever been to a cathedral, you'll understand that the purpose of the building is to convince you that God is big and you are not. Friends, that's an example of being consumed with God's transcendence. But today, I'm afraid that God's transcendence has been replaced with God's imminence, the fact that God is with us. Now, of course, even a song that we sang just today, it is a wonderful truth. It is why we celebrate Christmas, isn't it? Emmanuel, God with us. It's one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's table. Not that 
that, that God is in the elements, but he is, he is with us as we are celebrating the Lord's table together. We are coming to meet with him. And of course, it's one of the promises that we love to embrace. If I were to say, you know, what is the, the, the wonderful attribute that you hold on to? Certainly one of the top five is, is the fact that God is always with me. It's a comfort for us. So we celebrate the fact that he is here now. He is with me wherever I go. He is a caring father. He's a faithful friend. But friends, it is a truth that if we're not careful about, will allow us to treat God casually. And we will be tempted to relegate him to be my buddy, my co-pilot, and my homeboy. He's a cool dude. I can joke with him. I can give him a high five. When, friends, he is none of those things. And so the pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction. We have allowed the truth of his eminence or imminence to water down and dilute our understanding of his transcendence. And friends, what we need to see is that God still remains transcendent. He is still majestic. He is still powerful. He's still awesome. He's still totally beyond us. But he is also imminent, very much present with us. He is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. That is why Christmas is so amazing, because it is talking about God with us, a transcendent God condescending to be with us. So friends, here in our text, God is in heaven and he seeks to come down. He says, I am coming to you. And now Israel is preparing to meet with God. And as we come to this text, it is asking us a very important question, which I've already asked, and that is, am I ready to meet with God? My friends, the Lord is coming, but are you ready to meet with him? It's a fair question. It's an honest question. It's a revealing question, and it's a life-changing question. And our text really is broken neatly into three sections. First of all, we're going to see affirmation, verses 7 through 9. Then we're going to see preparation, and then we're going to see mediation. Affirmation, preparation, mediation. And these statements are rooted in covenant language. Let's just jump in now to this wonderful text, into what I'm calling covenant affirmation. And I want to remind you of the actual covenant that God is expressing in verses 4 through 6. In those last few verses, God has laid out the requirements of his covenant. And remember, it's a covenant built upon grace. We have grace. He says, this is what I have done for you. I've delivered you. I've brought you out with, uh, with eagle's wings. I drew you to myself. That's all his grace. And that's the foundation from which this covenant now is built. But then there's this obedience. That is what I expect from you, obeying my voice and keeping my covenant. And that now bears fruit in blessing. When you are obedient and keep your covenant with me, you will experience the blessing of who you actually are, my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so now Moses comes to the elders of Israel and tells them what the Lord says to them. 
the implication is that the elders are going to go back to the people and they're going to tell the people what God has said through Moses to them that they need to hear. So now the question is, will Israel embrace God's covenant conditions? They have been declared. They have been revealed. How will they respond to his requirements? And we'll notice, first of all, that they embrace the covenant. Let's look at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set, uh, set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Just just let those words settle in. Now, because we have a little grasp of the history of Israel, so we can flash forward a little bit, we will maybe quickly say in our hearts or in our minds, Israel really didn't take this seriously. Or, Or they didn't really think this through. Or they spoke way too quickly. And that might be a little harsh of us to say that. But friends, the people of Israel had to embrace this covenant. There was no reason why they should refuse God's requirements. I mean, just think about what they have experienced with him. God had shown them that they are much better off here in the wilderness with him than they were when they were in Egypt under slavery. The point here is that God wasn't forcing them to agree to the terms of the covenant No, they had to do it willingly, and they did it by faith. They had to acknowledge God's lordship over their lives. And they had learned in the last few weeks that they couldn't take care of themselves, right? They needed water. They couldn't find it. They needed food. They couldn't take care of themselves there. God was the one who was not only the deliverer, but he was the provider. They also had to trust in the promise of his blessing, the promises of God that had been made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before them, and numerous people, a land, a treasure possession, priests, set-apart people. All these are promises. All these are realities that God is saying, this is who you are. This is what I'm giving to you. They had to trust his promises, so they come. All the people come together, and they embrace the covenant stipulations and requirements by faith. Now, let's remind ourselves, they're already God's people. They have already been saved. They've already been delivered. But now God is ushering them into being a people who would live their lives in a certain way by a set of certain standards that he now is revealing to them. He's he's wanting them to live their lives in covenant with him. So here he's stipulating for them how to live as his saved people. And that same reality, friends, is still true today. We who have been saved are called to live out our lives by faith, embracing the fact that Jesus is Lord. You know, years ago when I was younger and in high school, there seemed to be this hard distinction between this is the moment of your salvation and then there's this moment in you know, post-salvation when you dedicate your life to the Lordship of Christ. And that kind of came through some faulty thinking because the fact is, Jesus is Lord. That fact doesn't change. And when salvation occurs, when you experience conversion, God breathing life into you, the fact that Jesus is Lord hasn't changed. The issue there is you submitting to the fact that he is Lord. And Israel here is saying, we are acknowledging that you are Lord. 
My friends, there's all sorts of people whom you are friends with. Coworkers, neighbors, people that you interact with, with your hobbies and different things, but they may believe that God exists. They may believe that he is a God of love and mercy and compassion. And there might be even some who, who believe that some of the things in the Bible are actually true about who God is. But they've never actually embraced him by faith. In fact, there are ministers out there who will say that the gospel is to go out and tell people that they are already God's children. See, we're all God's children. That's what they would, they would say. We're, every, every human is a child of God. They just don't know that they're a child of God, and so the gospel is to reconcile them to God. Well, that's classic liberalism, but it's out there, and it's creeping in to the body of Christ, friends. Now, what we need to understand then is that for a covenant to be completed, each party must agree to the conditions. Israel had to embrace the covenant by faith. They had to agree with God. And when we respond to the gospel, we do so by faith, embracing the requirements of the new covenant, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus deserves our praise, that Jesus is the reason why we have been reconciled to God. And of course, that reconciling coming through that sacrifice of a perfect son and a perfect savior. Now, friends, have you responded to God's gospel by embracing it fully and completely by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross? This is the first affirmation that takes place. Israel affirms their covenant with God. All that the Lord says we will do. Now, the second affirmation is a little different, but still has a covenant relationship to it. Here we find that Moses mediates the covenant. So it has to do with Moses. And it has to do with God affirming Moses as that mediator for the people. So what we find in these verses is that Moses is taking on his God-given role as mediator for the people and for God. In verse 7, Moses comes to the elders and gives them the word of the Lord. In verse 8, Moses reports the words of the people back to the Lord. So he's kind of like this middleman, mediator for God and for the people. Now, doesn't that strike you a little bit strange? It makes sense that the Lord might need a, a representative simply because of the fact that he is transcendent, that he is so holy and mighty that, that man can't see him and live, right? We understand that he would have a rep representation there. But it's not as if God can't hear what the people are saying. He knows. So what we have here, friends, is a covenant ritual going on. God tells Moses, here are the promises of the covenant, here are the stipulations of the covenant, here are the conditions of the covenant. Now go tell the other party, that would be Israel, and come back and tell me what they say. And so Moses goes and does that as a representative of God, and he speaks to Israel. Then when Israel is given their response, it is Moses who represents the people back to God. They've agreed to the terms of the conditions, requirements, and stipulations. So Moses here is serving as the one mediator between both parties, between God and Israel. Now, what is it that the Lord says to Moses? Look at verse 3, or verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. 
Now, it's important just to step back and to remind ourselves that God has not yet spoken directly to the people. Everything that God has said to the people has come through the mouth of Moses and maybe even through the mouth of Aaron when Moses wasn't the one speaking. God had told Moses to tell the people back in chapter 3 these things. This is verses 16 and 17. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses said that to the people. He represented God. And right before the tenth plague, Moses relayed the words of the Lord to the people about how to prepare and celebrate the Passover meal, as well as how to leave their homes and how to actually plunder the Egyptians. And as we saw in the wilderness, God spoke through Moses at the Red Sea, telling the people what to do. And when they came to the bitter waters of Marah, he spoke to, to the people through Moses. And in the wilderness of sin, when they were hungry, God has been speaking to Israel, but always through Moses, his chosen mediator. Now, God is saying to Moses, I'm coming in a thick cloud, that. Did you notice that word? That. It's a purpose statement, isn't it? that the people may hear when I speak with you. So God is wanting now Moses to be seen as the meteor, but he also wants them to know that God is actually speaking to Moses. It's not that they're hearing the conversation, but they're hearing the fact that Moses is interacting with God. Secondly, that they may believe you forever. So God has a goal here in coming down and speaking with Moses that the people will see you or hear when I speak with you, and that they may believe you forever. The very fact that we are walking through the book of Exodus this morning is evidence of that second one, right? That, that, that Moses' testimony, Moses' presence as a meteor has gone on. So God is affirming the mediatorial role of Moses between him and the people of Israel. So the people affirm the covenant, and God affirms Moses as the covenant mediator. Now, that's helpful, and that's important for the foundation of what's going to happen next, because we move from the covenant affirmation to what I'm calling the covenant preparation. This, this next section is all about preparation. And when God told the words of the people to the Lord, that's the end of verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. So when Moses finishes with the people and he turns to God, God says, go consecrate the people. Now, consecration is a word that means to be set apart. And in the context of what we're seeing here, it means to be set apart, especially for the Lord and his service. And in verses 10 through 13, we see three ways that they are to consecrate themselves. They are to first wash their garments, secondly, to be ready, and third, to set limits or boundaries. Let's look at each of one of those more specifically. First of all, they are to wash their garments. And I'm saying here the word, or using the word here, cleansing. There's a cleansing that needs to take place here. Now, what do you think the symbolism is? Is it just about getting cleaned up and being neat and tidy because the Lord is coming. 
somehow putting on your Sunday best, looking impressive. Now, can you imagine what that meant for Israel? We just got to kind of get into the story a little bit and get into the circumstances a little bit. Where are they? They're in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai. Deserts are usually dirty and dusty, okay? So their clothes are dirty. They are dusty. There's a need, practically speaking, for them to be washed. But there's something more going on here, isn't there? What do you need in order to wash clothes? You need water. And where are they? In the desert. (laughs) So the question is, how are they going to get this done? Is there enough water? Another question, how many people are we talking about here? Well, if you go back to chapter 12 of Exodus, verses 37 through 38 say this, 600,000 men on foot plus women and children. So you have at least 600,000. Then add the women and children to that. Estimates would say somewhere between 1 and 2 million children of Israel walking into the wilderness here. Now just think about that. That's a lot of clothes to wash. That's a lot of water. It's a lot of waiting in line. Not to mention the difficulty if they only had one set of clothes, and you can use your imagination there. But what is the symbolism? It's acknowledging that God is holy and you are not. It's acknowledging that God is clean and you are not. That you need to be clean before you can come into his presence. But it wasn't so much about the clothes. There's a heart attitude at work here. The physical cleansing was to be a a, a reflection of the spiritual condition of the heart. Wash clothes pointed to a deeper attitude of a cleansed heart, a heart that is oriented to God's demands. This is not means of salvation stuff. This is already saved. Now I am seeking as one of God's children to now meet with him, to interact with him in a right way. Now, friends, there's there's a sense in which the same ethic is true in the ordinance of baptism. The physical act of being immersed under the water doesn't impart any extra grace or standing before the Lord. It's simply a matter of obedience. And when someone is baptized, they are demonstrating physically what is true in their heart spiritually, right? It's a public display of an inward reality that you are now a child of God. The point is the change that God has caused to happen in the heart of the believer. And so the the, the physical is a representation of the spiritual. So similarly, the washing of the garments communicates a heart attitude that is clean and ready to meet with God. Friends, the same would be true for us. We're not saying put on your best clothes for Sunday morning service although I do think it's good to be mindful and respectful of how you are presenting yourself in the context of church. But far more important than that is what's going on in your heart. Is your heart prepared? Are you doing some soul-searching even as you're anticipating coming to meet with the Lord? So there's cleansing. Secondly, 
there is reflecting. And here's the idea of being ready. Look at verse 11. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, God says here, be ready, and you have two days to wait and be ready. Not three days. You have two days to be ready. God is saying, I'm coming, so be ready, but I'm not coming until the third day. And so notice in verse 16, we're told that the Lord's coming would begin in the morning of the third day, right? So they had two days to go about their preparations, and that gives them time to ask themselves some questions, doesn't it? You've got two days to do something? Who is this God that is coming? What has this God done to show me who he is? What has he already said by the mouth of Moses that I need to embrace or pay attention to? What does he expect of me? So this is two days of thinking, of contemplating, and reflecting on God and the covenant that he has made with them. And if you look down at verse 15, we'll read something that at face value just seems to be completely out of place, doesn't it? It says, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. Uh, Certainly not saying to Israel, you know, stay away from women. That's not the point. The point here, maybe it could could be said this way. Be ready and do not have physical relations with your wife. That's the idea behind this. Now, again, that seems weird, doesn't it? Is God saying that there is something unspiritual about sexual relations in marriage? Absolutely not. The the whole function of the physical relations in marriage is a beautiful, wonderful, and godly thing. But God is calling them to have him as their focus and to keep their focus by willfully restraining themselves might want to say fasting, so that they can concentrate on God. And it's interesting that the only time in Scripture where uh, we're given any reason for withholding marital sexual relations is in 1 Corinthians, where by mutual agreement, the husband and the wife want to devote themselves to prayer. So some very similar things are happening here, right? Here in Exodus 19, they are to devote their hearts to contemplate and concentrate on God. So this is a time of consecration that is a time of cleansing, it's a time of reflection, but it's also a time of fencing. Now I don't mean fencing by the, you know, get out the sword and kind of hack each other. I'm talking here about setting limits. That's what it says in the text here, right? Verse 12, and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care, do not go into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Now, so the the limits here are not so much limits around the people. They are limits around the mountain, right? Don't go up into the mountain, he says. Don't touch the edge of it. He also says, whoever does touch the mountain shall be put to death. Now you're like, whoa, where's this coming from? And then it says, the person who exercises God's judgment is the executioner to put the person to death. That person cannot touch the person who had gone up into the mountain or touched the edge of the mountain, or they will have to be put to death. Listen, friends, God is not playing around. And he's communicating, look, I am holy. And friends, God knows how we will tend to behave, doesn't he? 
He knows that we'll always be wanting to push the envelope. We want to cross the lines, wanting to have our curiosity satisfied. It's just human nature, not necessarily to stay behind the boundaries. You know, when, some, when you come across a sign that says, stay off the grass, we all know what we're thinking. I just want to put my foot on there, see what happens. Now, what is going on here? Why does it seem that God is so touchy about this mountain? The reason is because this mountain is going to become a tabernacle. Now, remember, there is no hand-built tabernacle at this time, but Mount Sinai will become that place where God dwells from which God will speak. And a little later in the book of Exodus, God will lay out the guidelines for who can enter the tabernacle. And who could enter the Holy of Holies? And of course, it's the priest that could enter, and it's only God's appointed mediator, the, um, the high priest, that could go in there once a year. So friends, the text is screaming at us. It is an awesome and dangerous thing to come into the presence of God because we are not holy and God is. Do we even comprehend the danger of God's holiness. See, we must come to God with a seriousness and a respect that reflects our understanding of his majesty, his glory, and his grace. Now, we don't cower before God. He's our friend. But we are supposed to be unsettled because he is almighty. And both of those things can be true and should be true. Isn't that what Isaiah is communicating in chapter 6 of his book when he had a vision of God? And we have to understand that Isaiah was likely the most spiritual person in the nation at that point in time. And here is what he says, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. He says, woe is me. This is after he has a vision of God. He has, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's the end for me. Notice he didn't say, hey, dude, what's shaking? What's going on? You know I've been serving you faithfully, speaking for you and all that. No, he says, woe is me. Do you see how God's transcendence and imminence are at work in our text today. God is holy and above us, and yet God, even though he is holy and above us, condescends to us. He comes willingly, joyfully, graciously, but it is no flippant thing. It is a serious matter, and God requires that when we come and when he, we come to meet with him, that we are consecrated. Our hearts are clean. Our focus is singular. Our respect is on high alert. That's the covenant preparation. But now we move into covenant mediation. We've already seen Moses is serving God faithfully in his role as mediator between the people of God and God. He took the words to the people, and he took the words of the people back to God, right? 
Now he goes back to the people to see that God's word is embraced and applied. And so what we find here is that, is that uh, there's this consecration being taken place through or by Moses. It says, verse 14, So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. So we're seeing here Moses consecrates the people. It could simply mean that Moses was the agent to get the people to do the things mentioned above, right? The cleansing, uh, the fencing, and so on. But those three things themselves, although right and good because they were requirements set by God himself, were ultimately insufficient. So Moses performed some kind of consecration. We're not told specifically what that is in the text. He likely prayed on behalf of the people, and he likely performed some kind of sacrifice. Now, friends, why do I say that? Because that's the pattern that has already been set. We see the need for sacrifice as early as Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3.21. We see it in the first covenant with Abraham. It included an animal sacrifice, that's Genesis 15. Abraham then offered a ram in the place of Isaac, his son, Genesis 22. Again, this consecration through sacrifice is what we see taking place in the instructions and application of the Passover lamb as sacrifice had to be given. That's in Exodus 13. So the pattern of sacrifice was already present. And I, I just, I, I believe, although you, the doesn't, text doesn't say, but it seems that the idea of consecration is something that he's doing for the people as God's mediator to offer a blood sacrifice on behalf of the people. See, our consecration is good. It's right. We need to do those things. But on our own, with our own efforts, they are insufficient to meet with God. So there's a consecration by Moses, but there's also a consecration ultimately that comes through Christ. And what we've learned so far in chapter 19 is this, that both grace and faith are the foundation of our covenant with God. Secondly, that meeting with God is a serious, is serious business and we must not take it lightly. Third, that our efforts are not enough. We need a mediator. And Moses was good for Israel. He did his job, but he was a flawed mediator. What we need is a perfect mediator to represent us before the Lord. And that is why the writer of Hebrews touches in, uh, that's what he touches in chapter 12 of his book. I just pause here and just say this. I, I'm just convinced that I am learning Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, by studying Exodus. <laughs> because so much of Exodus here is interpreted for us, is applied or points to Christ in the book of Hebrews. It's absolutely incredible. Well, here, the writer of Hebrews in his sermon uh, takes really the, 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 this, this picture of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and he compares the two, and he compares the mediators in both situations, Mount Sinai being what we're seeing here in Exodus 19, and Mount Zion, which we find in the Gospels, where Jesus is hanging on the cross. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll begin at verse 18. And you just, you just catch the tone of what he's saying. For you have not come to what may be touched. Remember that language? 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. If we read on in chapter 19, we'll see those words used. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a blast touches, a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. I mean, so they understood this is a harsh command. It's demanding. It's, it's, it's lofty. It's dreadful. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. You have one that seems more like doom and gloom and harsh and heavy, but you have another one now that is also magnificent and transcendent here, far beyond what we find in Exodus 19 and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were good. They satisfied God for a season, but they all point to a sacrifice that was the ultimate sacrifice once for all. Of course, that is Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. So he, here's the point that, that God wants us to see. You and I need a God-appointed mediator in order to approach him. God is absolutely holy, and we are sinful. Any attempt to approach God by our good deeds will end with our perishing on the day of judgment, just as the Israelites would have perished if they had tried to break through to God on the mountain without a mediator. Jesus is the mediator God has provided. And it's through Jesus that we can now draw near to God for salvation. And it's also through Jesus that we continue to draw near to God for sanctification. So even when we come to God, we have a responsibility to be clean, to be cleansed, to be consecrated. But even still, we come to God through Christ. The fact that we are saved doesn't change the fact that God is holy and we are not. See, we're not holy in and of ourselves. It is Christ, our mediator, who is holy. It is His holiness that declares us in right standing before God. It is his holiness that is applied to us. It is his righteousness that clothes us and enables us to come boldly to the throne of grace. And when we approach God's throne, we do so unsettled by his transcendence, but emboldened by his imminence. Of course, you remember C.S. Lewis and the, um, the Chronicles of Narnia and one of the famous statements in particular of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe was when Tumna speaks to Lucy at the end. Here's what Lewis says. Tumna says to, says to Lucy, he's not a tame lion. And Lucy responds, 
but he is good. See, he's not tame. He, he, he is powerful. He is mighty. He is transcendent. But he's also good. He's also imminent. He also cares about his creation. Isn't it interesting that so much of, of religion wants to build structures, cathedrals, to, to kind of demonstrate God's transcendence? But in Scripture, we're reminded the heavens declare the glory of God. All you have to do is walk outside and you see, in a sense, God's cathedral to remind you of how magnificent and mighty he is and how small you are. And yet he's made a way that we can be reconciled to him, that we can have fellowship with him through the mediator, his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I have three implications of this text for us. So the first implication I want us to see as we bring things to a close is this. An implication for how we live in the context of an unbelieving world. There's a, a Latin expression that I think is really, really helpful. It's corum deo. You may have heard it before. It literally means to live in the presence of God. It means to live our lives in the presence of God under the authority of God and to the glory of God. So we seek to live corum deo. And friends, that's the big idea of the Christian life. It is to understand that whatever we are doing, wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. There is no place so remote that we cannot escape his penetrating gaze. It is to be act, uh, acutely aware of his sovereignty. He's not just everywhere, but he is also fully in control, right? He is exercising his will in ways we cannot understand, but his will is being accomplished. Now, friends, we need that right now, don't we? We, we, we walk out of our doors in our homes right now, and there's all sorts of things that are happening, and we can lose sight. We can lose the plot. And we need to live Coram Deo to remind ourselves that God is sovereign, that he is watching. He's fully aware. This is what Israel is experiencing. This is what we should experience. But it is also to then live a life of integrity because you are living it for the glory and majesty of God. So let's flesh this out a little bit. When you're angry with your spouse, you need to remember to live Coram Deo. When your coworkers turn on you because your worldview is in opposition to theirs, you need to remember to live Coram Deo. When your neighbor has a party so late and so loud that your children cannot sleep, and you want to be refreshed for Sunday morning service, but you can't, you need to live Coram Deo. When you're forced to wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands, and stand in long lines because a store is at its capacity, you need to remember to live Coram Deo. When your government sends you a stimulus check, you need to remember to live Coram Deo in the presence of and this, this transcendent and imminent God. When the doctor gives you bad news about your health, you need to live Coram Deo 
Friends, this, this transcendence and eminence are all a means for us then to say, this is how I can live in light of the reality of who God is and seek to do that for his glory. It also, this passage also has implications for us in how we come and gather as a church. Now, I realize that we're, we're in homes right now, but the reality, when we typically come to church, these things are true. As a church, we're, we're no longer estranged from God to the degree that Israel had been in the Old Testament where there was a, a kind of a distance between the people and God, even though we see God coming down and visiting with Israel. But when Christ came the, and when he was on the cross and he, he died, he breathed his last, one of the symbolic things that happens is that the veil of the temple is torn in two. It symbolized a new and living way for God's children to come and worship him. So we come not to a physical place where God dwells, a mountain, a tabernacle, or a temple, but we come as the place where God dwells. We are the temple of the living God. Big change. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17 say this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, I realize he's, this, this you is a, is, a, is a corporate you, but there's also this reality that the Holy Spirit lives in us personally. So did you know that? Did you know that you're the temple of God? Did you know that you are a temple of God, that God's Spirit dwells in you? Here's the picture. In the Old Testament... We have holy mountains, tabernacles, and temples where God dwelled and revealed himself to man. In the New Testament, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the temple of God changes from a place to a people. We are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. So again, get the picture here. When we gather for church on a Sunday morning, we have individual temples, individual people who are a part of God's chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and God's possession, and they're traveling together from their homes to a point where they can stand in one place for corporate worship as God's temple. We come and worship the transcendent God who's come to meet his people through the one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. Now, friends, when I was in Ukraine... In fact, I think Yulia was with me on this particular trip. I remember going to St. Michael's Cathedral in Kiev. And I was first struck by the fact that in this magnificent cathedral, there are no seats, no pews. It may have been one or two chairs where someone who was providing something sat, but for the perspective of worship, the people don't sit, they stand, they come in and they stand. And the idea is it's, it's a means of, of expressing respect for God. Needless to say, the services aren't too long. The second thing I noticed, though, was also how grand and how majestic and how beautiful and how regal all of the building was. You look on every wall and every ceiling and every place, beautiful pictures and paintings of, of, of uh, you know, ideas of who God is or, or characters from the Old Testament and even the apostles and characters and the stories from the New Testament, just all over the place. Very, very powerful. Very, very meaningful in that sense. There are statues 
uh, around the place. There are places where incense is being offered up. And you get the point that God truly is magnificent. That's the point. They want you to look up and say, wow, God is great. And on that level, I was moved. I mean, I was truly in awe. The, the means that they used, the artwork, all of that was, was helpful to draw my attention to the fact that God is transcendent. But what was woefully missing was the gospel of God's imminence. Oh, the story of Christ and his birth and his life and the disciples and the apostles, they're all across the walls, but even they were seen as beyond reach. You were just kept at a distance from God without any hope of anything more. You could pray to one of the Old Testament saints. They have these little places you can go and you can, you can kiss it and all that kind of stuff, but you're praying to a, an Old Testament saint that maybe that saint can actually influence God on your behalf. Or maybe if the Old Testament saints wouldn't work, you could go to one of the apostles. They might be able to do it, but you yourself, you're alone. You're without any real hope. And I left moved but at the same time brokenhearted for the continued bondage that the Ukrainian Orthodox people were in, the sense of hopelessness. You see, God is transcendent, but he has come near. And friends, it's the greatest privilege to gather as God's church. Don't we feel that right now? His temple, of which Christ is the cornerstone, and we need to see and experience both his glorious transcendence and his gracious imminence. So friends, this, this passage and this picture we have in Exodus 19 helps us think through what it means to gather as his church. But finally, this also has implications for how we approach the Lord's Supper. How do you approach the Lord's Supper? And I realize we're sheltered in place right now, and it's not what we would want. We would rather have a corporate gathering together, and we're trying to find some ways that we can do this respectfully and accurately and, 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 and in a way that, that truly reflects the intent and the heart of God. Is there any preparation going on in your heart? Is there any conviction, thoughtful repentance, a, a, a zeal to live afresh for God? Is there contemplation? about where you once were before Christ drew you to himself and breathed new life into your soul through his gospel? Or is it something else? Now listen to the warning the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11. We don't often turn here when it comes to the Lord's Supper, but I think it's, it's helpful when we consider this whole idea of God's transcendence and his imminence. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 says this and following. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I mean, like, wow. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Ooh. And that is why many of you were weak and ill, and some have died. Yeah, that's right. All that 
heavy stuff happens in the Old Testament, right? Just see this text. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, without getting into all the details and the specifics of the interpretations of this text, we can certainly say this. We must approach the Lord's Supper not ritualistically, casually, carelessly, thoughtlessly, passively, or proudly, but we must approach it seriously with reverence, with discernment, thoughtfully, humbly, with hearts that are contrite, thankful, hopeful, and respectful. Friends, the Lord is coming. Are you ready to meet with him? It's a powerful question. It's an important question. It's a revealing question. And it's a life-changing question. Lord, help us today. As we have marinated for a while, Lord, in this preparation time for your coming down to meet with your people. And Lord, may we be able to contemplate your transcendence, Lord, your, the, the fact that you are wholly other, that you truly are in heaven, majestic and powerful. You are the creator. And Lord, that we really should have nothing to do with you. And yet, at the same time, you have demonstrated your willing desire to commune with us. And so through your eminence, you provided a mediator in your son, Jesus Christ, who went to a cross, died in our place, bore our wrath for the sins that we have committed. And through his death on the cross, has paid the penalty, reconciled us to God. Lord, what an incredible, beautiful reality is Lord, your condescension to be with us, to meet with us today. So, Lord, help us now as we consider how our lives should be lived, how we should prepare when we spend time with you, that we don't come with a cavalier attitude, a casual attitude, that we come with a proper reverence that's rooted in your magnificence, but also a, a proper um, thankfulness that's rooted in your grace. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you are a great and magnificent God who has reached out to us. and You've breathed life into our souls, and we are forever thankful. Help us now to live for you in your name. Amen.